Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series in the book of Genesis called Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, A Divided House. I don't think I'm telling any secrets when I say that human beings, while we desire relationship, are also a hopelessly divided house. Nations go to war against nations, sometimes over things that years later leave historians in wonder. How could such a thing lead to division and to war? But of course, there are other times when the cause for our division is pronounced and the roots of those divisions do seem insurmountable. But sometimes the warfare of nation against nation, while it's simply a macro picture of what happens in individual families. As we read through the beginning of the third section of the book of Genesis, we immediately see the roots of a division that will carry on through most of the history of the First Testament. Well, I'm reading Genesis 25, verses 19 to 34. It says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So let's tell the story. This is the story of division with roots in conception and being spread from generation to generation. This is the story of a man named Isaac in his divided house. Isaac was born to Abraham when his dad was 100 years old. His mother had been so old that at one point she described herself as being dried up on the inside. But God visited them and Isaac's birth was nothing short of miraculous. Indeed, Isaac was a child of promise, the promise of salvation to a sinful world. Isaac was the first fulfillment of that. And when Isaac was 14, Abraham took Isaac up Mount Moriah to sacrifice him as an offering to God. God had demanded it, but then God intervened and provided a ram in his place. And without going into the details, that event prefigured that a greater Isaac, by the name of Jesus, would be the sacrificial substitute for human sin. 
And when we come to Genesis 25, it's 25 years that have passed. And we find that Isaac is now 40 years old and he's just gotten married. That might not seem unusual in our culture, but we do know that in Jewish culture, the average young man would get married at about 20. But for whatever reason, Isaac was in no hurry to get a wife. And eventually one is found because of the kind provision of God. And upon marriage to Rebekah, they discover she's barren. She's unable to have children. Now, now, please remember, there's no birth control, and it would have been very natural for women to be pregnant shortly after marriage. So, so they would have known very early on whether or not she was barren. And so Isaac prays to God. After all, he remembers that his own mom was unable to be pregnant and that God had visited his mom at the age of 90 and that his own birth was a miraculous birth. Couldn't God do the same with them? And by all indications, that's exactly what he thought. And so he prays and God hears, and Rebecca becomes pregnant. But I wonder if you've noticed something here. Verse 26 says that Isaac is now 60. So he's been praying, I have to assume, for 20 years. You know, I have to stop here for a moment. I need to give us a little life lesson from this family. You can be the recipient of God's promises, but that doesn't mean it's going to be clear sailing. In fact, I would argue that the reverse is often the case. And sometimes God demands that the things we pray for can only come about as as a result of long, protracted praying. It's here that I notice something about Isaac. When Isaac's dad saw that his wife was not getting pregnant, well, he slept with his slave girl, Hagar, so he could have a child through her. You see, Abraham was anything but perfect. But Isaac doesn't follow his example. He remains faithful to Rebekah. Indeed, he never takes another wife. He doesn't sleep with his slave girl. He just keeps bringing his case before God. So what does that tell us about Isaac's character? I see Isaac as a man of deep reverence. He's persistent in prayer. He remains faithful both to his God and to his wife. So how does a man like that get a dysfunctional family? Uh, That's the whole thing that's so fascinating. Because the more we get into this story, we're going to see that Isaac hardly gets mentioned at all. Jacob, his son, becomes the star of the story, and Isaac just fades into the background. Why is that? Well, for instance, we see that when his sons quarrel, we will see Isaac and Rebekah taking different sides, both siding with a different son. Rebekah knows, because God's revealed it to her, that the older will serve the younger, and she gives preference to Jacob. But Isaac loves Esau because Esau, well, he's a man's man. Isaac may be a man of reverence and persistent prayer, but as time went on, we find moments when I think he lacks judgment. He lacks vision for both boys. He shows favoritism, and yep, his life is characterized by, at least at some moments, a lack of leadership. See, I believe that fathers are called to be leaders in their homes. And studies have shown that when men lead spiritually in their homes and in their church, the church tends to thrive, church attendance tends to go up, homes are healthy. But when men won't lead, when they refuse to make courageous decisions for God and for the good of their families, when when they refuse to get a vision for their wives and their families, when they stop being the spiritual priest of the home, when, when they can't look at their kids and get the courage to say no and to provide discipline and standards for their home, well, the long-term results are tragic. And so it seems to me that in our story, we have Isaac, the child of promise, who is a man who does love God and is a man who leads in key times, but also he's a man who abandons leadership in other times. Signs that all will not be well begin very early. 
verse 22 says that the babies were struggling in the womb. You know, one translation says that they jostled with each other, but I don't think that gets the idea. The Hebrew here means to abuse or to crush or to oppress. In other words, something well beyond the norm was going on. The struggle in Rebecca's womb was so violent that she must have cried out in agony that it was tearing her insides apart. And in desperation, she goes to God and God speaks to her. Now, we don't know how God spoke, but he did. And God tells her that two peoples, two nations, two races of people are in her womb, and these two nations will be fighting each other constantly. This is simply a sign for the future. Now, from history, we do know that that's exactly what happened. Esau's descendants were the Edomites, and Jacob's descendants are the Israelites. And in Numbers 20, we're told that Edom inherited their land before Israel, and that Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through their territory to their promised land and even came out in force against them. We know that there was frequently warfare between Israel and Edom and that King David eventually, according to 2 Samuel chapter 8, eventually subjugated the Edomites and made them a part of his kingdom. The book of Obadiah Edom is condemned because they took part when foreigners invaded Israel and they even gloated over Israel's defeat. And we also know that in the New Testament, it was King Herod or Herod the Great who slaughtered all the firstborn in Bethlehem in his vain attempt to destroy the Messiah, that this Herod was of Edomite descent. Now, this indeed was a foreshadowing of a great and bloody contest between two nations And Rebecca, the mother of them both, was already beginning to suffer under this. What's even more fascinating is what happens next. The two boys are born, and the first one becomes the firstborn. And in the ancient world, the, the firstborn would inherit a double portion of all that his father had. So in this case, Esau would get two thirds and Jacob would get one third. But as we're going to find out, God has other plans. From February 7th to 16th, 2020, make plans to join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again Southern Caribbean Cruise. You'll be sailing the seas for nine days aboard Royal Caribbean's Explorer of the Seas, visiting Aruba, Curacao, Bonaire, and more. You'll be joining Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's Phil Calloway, and special friends and musicians, The Weebs. You'll be spiritually enriched and challenged, laugh and be encouraged, and enjoy great fellowship and refreshment. Come on your own or with your family and friends as you enjoy incredible ports of call, everything the ship has to offer, and a week of ministry designed specifically for the occasion. Check it out and get on board at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. Esau is born first, and if there's ever a case of nature over nurture, well, this is it. Esau is the missing link. This kid is hairy top to bottom, and and they gave him the name Harry. Uh, That's what Esau means. I know some of you are named Harry, but I've met all sorts of bald Harrys, but this Harry, well, he's Harry. And then look what happens next. Jacob comes out with his hand attached to Esau's heel. 
And they give him the name Jacob, which means he who grasps the heel, which carries the idea of grasping or clutching or trying hard to get something. And how true this turns out to be. This kid Jacob spends his life grasping for things that he wants and doesn't mind if the things he wants brings harm to others. And so one day, as the text teaches us, Jacob made his brother swear an oath to him, something that could not be revoked, very much like in our day, a legal contract that's attested by lawyers. His brother would give him the rights of the firstborn for a bowl of lentil stew. Now, I don't know if Esau connected this rash vow with the blessing of Abraham. I think he probably didn't because he saw no value for Abraham's blessing to the world. It's important to realize that Abraham died when these boys were 15. And so, no doubt, the boys were very aware of what God had promised to Abraham, their grandfather. But I also have no doubt that whereas Jacob didn't know if the birthright included the blessing or not, one thing's clear, he was grasping, he was angling for something. So there could be no greater contrast between these two brothers. Esau is violent, he's rash, and he's given to anger. Jacob is cunning, he's merciless, and he's conniving. I wouldn't do business with either one of them. The first would kill you and the second would rob you blind. And between the two of them, the stage is set for conflict. And dad wasn't giving enough leadership. He simply liked the older because the older was a man's man. He's a hunter. What characteristics are there of a dysfunctional family? Well, for one, there's enough blame to go around. Have you ever met a dysfunctional marriage or a dysfunctional family? Everyone's always blaming someone and no one owns up to their own role in this matter. They blame their parents, or they blame their siblings, or they blame someone else. And when that happens, no solution is on the horizon. But there's a second characteristic of dysfunctional families. There's a difference of fundamental values. I'm sure you've seen it already. Esau is an immediate gratification kind of a guy. Now, present something to him, and he wants it, and he will like to get it no matter what the long-term consequences might be. We all know people like that. They are the first people to get into a heated argument. They get fired from their jobs, but they've made their point and no one's gonna push them around it. And I think that's Esau. Jacob, on the other hand, is a long-term merciless planner and plotter. He's gonna kiss you on one cheek while he puts a sword in your back. He looks at the long-term and from that perspective, it's easy for him to manipulate a guy like Esau. Well, that's how the story begins, but why tell it? What does it mean? Well, here's what we learn. First of all, have you ever wondered why God chooses to bless Jacob? Well, someone might say he didn't because Jacob manipulated his way into the blessing, but when you think that, you're wrong. You might be able to deceive your brother and trick him, but you don't trick God and you don't manipulate God. And if you miss that point, you'll miss the entire point of this account. This is the story of a God who chooses. Look again at verse 23. God determined the destiny of these two boys while they were in the womb. In fact, later on, the Bible itself would comment on this very thing. Listen to Romans 9, 10 to 13. It says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, But because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. 
As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, please don't misinterpret that. Hated is here to be understood as rejected. God rejected Esau. Now, someone might say, well, maybe God did this kind of thing once, but he doesn't do it now. Well, not so. Listen to John 15, 16. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Well, still, someone might say, well, maybe that's true of Jacob and it's true of the 12 disciples, but it couldn't be true of anyone else. Well, yeah, it can. Listen to the words of Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as, listen now, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, without getting into all the details of that, the implications should be clear. So many people are afraid they aren't good enough to be a Christian, and truth be told, you're right. The older I get, the more alarmed I am personally of my own sin, and so should you be. I never worry about people who are honest enough to admit the depths of their depravity. I worry about those who are not. We're a great big dysfunctional family, but what distinguishes us from the rest of the dysfunctional families on the earth are not our choices not our worthy deeds, not our ability to choose what's noble and good, but rather that God has had mercy on us, that God has chosen to make us his own. And that's the story of Jacob. He's lying and conniving and merciless, and he's a cheat. But eventually, before he dies, he will find mercy. And that's the story of Paul, the persecutor of God's people. He is a man who found mercy. And that's the story of Peter, the coward and self-serving man who found mercy. And that's the story of me, personally. I am the undisciplined, self-willed, egotistical rascal who found mercy. And that's your story if you're in Christ. It's the story of God entering into a voting booth and picking you on his ballot. It's the story of mercy. If you learn nothing else from these accounts, learn that. And as we go through the story of Jacob, we're going to see a man who eventually gets changed. You know, sometimes he gets changed by others deceiving him, and sometimes by direct encounters with God, and sometimes simply by being placed in a helpless situation. But through his life, God is preparing him for that one day when he actually encounters Jesus as his Savior. Yeah, you heard me right. Jacob encountered Jesus as his Savior. Now, I'm laying so much emphasis on this because that's where the Bible will lead us. Yeah, it's true. Jacob saw the value of the inheritance while Esau despised it, but Jacob never saw the eternal value of the inheritance. Jacob at this moment is an unregenerate man who's looking to become rich. That's his motivation, pure and simple. Now, this is not the story of the moral superiority of those whom God chooses. This is the story of the mercy of God on a most unworthy man by the name of Jacob. But putting things like that might mislead us yet. This story, Jacob and Esau, is also the story of the value of eternal things. I go back to the day when Esau has been out hunting, and he's come back empty-handed. He's hot, he's tired, he's hungry, and he's impatient. And for immediate gratification, he sells his rights as the firstborn to his brother. What do we make of that? Listen to Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. 
It says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here's the lesson. Immediate stuff, like holding on to grudges, what people have done to us, or immediate stuff like sexual relations outside of marriage, or immediate stuff like choices in life that are motivated by greed or fame or some other such thing. This immediate stuff can cause us to become defiled and rejected so that later in life, all that's left to us is regret. See, if the truth be told, not a day goes by for any of us in which we do not make the big choices, the choices in which reveal to ourselves what we truly are. And in the end of the day, the little decisions become very big because they direct the course of a life on the way to eternity. And so how do we have hope? Well, we return to the theme of our series, God's amazing promises to dysfunctional people. You know, as much as this series might help us to clarify the things that really matter, and as much as we might be disheartened by the dysfunction that we find in all of us, my prayer is that we might find in this story hope for ourselves, our spouses, our children, our families. God's promises to us are bigger than our problems. John, I think you, you, you illustrate so well that a stumbling block we have, this, this sense that Jacob and Esau were seen differently in God's eyes. But the reality is neither of them were worthy. Yeah, they're very different kind of people who exhibit their sin very differently. You know, this impulsive uh, Esau who acts in the spur of the moment and the scheming, long-term planning, ready to lie at the drop of a hat, Jacob, they're very different. And so, you know, it depends on what you like in human sin, if you, if you like the schemer better or if you like the impulsive guy better. I mean, but the reality is the Bible doesn't describe Jacob as any way morally superior. And so, I, that's wonderful for those of us who have come to know Christ. We, we have come to realize that it was not something superior in us that commended us to God, but rather his mercy. So um, that's a, I, I find hope in this, not any panic. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series in the book of Genesis right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The mission of Back to the Bible Canada is simple. We teach the Bible. It's a commitment to bringing the light of Christ to a dark world in such desperate need. We all face dark days, but we know that the living Word of God brings light and hope like nothing else. If Back to the Bible Canada or any of its associated ministries or resources have impacted your life with Jesus, we're hoping this month you would join us in reaching an important fiscal year-end ministry goal of $325,000. Your gift makes these ministries possible every day and continues to sustain the Bible teaching programs you enjoy on this station and the many other mediums made available for teaching the Bible within Canada or in fact around the world. Would you offer your support this month? Your generosity makes this ministry possible. Call today with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 
or visit backtothebible.ca.